Uh, we've been looking at different um, John's kind of interesting here at the beginning. There'll be some sort of like live action event that happens, like um, you know the feeding of the five thousand and uh, and then there'll be this interaction. A really long, detailed interaction that, like, I think you know, like on that one, we probably spent like five or six weeks. It's it's difficult to like spend that much time on one interaction, trying to explain to the crowd and work through with them what it is that they're experiencing and how to sort of process that and put that into life and to be able to see like how this is contrary. This is like introducing something contrary to where they've been, and he's sort of interacting with them, and there's this back and forth that happens. In this case, the event that happens is this uh, woman that's caught in adultery, and uh, uh, you know we looked at, at that story earlier, and now there's this interaction. And what's interesting in this story is it says uh, right off the bat that uh, the conversation that he's having are with the people that believed in him. And you may ask, you know, belief, what's belief? You know, what is it that they believed? And you might ex- we might excuse ourselves from the situation of saying that they weren't like believers in the way that we are or something like that. But it, it's pretty clear from the passage, he's talking to a group of people that would be, look like us. Does that make sense? People to whatever extent. I mean, I know that there's people here that don't believe. Um, people here that do, and it's not talking to a crowd of people that have said that they believe. It's talking to a group of people that are declared in the story by the writer of the story as having believed it. Does that make sense? So, in other words, it's God who's saying this is a group of people that believe. And and so the interesting thing about the story is, is the story ends, it begins with this test to Jesus about whether or not they should stone to death this woman. And after they come to believe and Jesus has this discussion with them, the story ends with them trying to stone Jesus (laughs) or kill him. And he's grappling with this. And and what is it that they came to believe? It it says, this is where we start off. It says, So Jesus said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own, but speak just as the Father has taught me. The one who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do what pleases Him. Even as he spoke, many put their faith in him, or many believed in him. And then it says, to the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said. And so these are the words to that. So, so what is it? He says that they, they've come to believe, but what it is that they've come to believe, they're not really going to completely understand until after they kill him on the cross. He's lifted up on the, it has a dual meaning of being lifted up on the cross, and God raising him from the dead. Like those instances of like looking back on this. They started with something, but it's really after they come to grapple with the fact that as uh, 
Paul would often argue with people to help them understand that Jesus had to suffer and die on the cross, that the salvation that he's offering us required him to do that for us. After there's some sort of realization of that, and then, and after seeing that after we've done our worst and that's happened, that God raised him from the dead and gave him life, and it wasn't the end of the story. The end of the story is as bad as the world can do, God just gives life. So he's saying in the context of So what is it that they believed? It's real belief. They, in some sort of way, came to a beginning of coming to understand that the Savior needed to die on the cross for them and that their hope was not in their actions of meeting that the right way, but their hope is that God would allow them to join into the miracle of the resurrection from the dead. They're, they're coming to understand that. And Jesus' words to them here are obviously geared to building on that. So they have some sort of understanding of their need for forgiveness. They have the, the belief that's there in, in Jesus in his message, but the uh, the thing that just makes this conversation off the chart and feel as though this isn't a conversation that pertains to us is because of this looming question of how is it that people can have real belief in Jesus and yet become murderous? And that's not something that we always talk about that in, uh, like, like Jesus said of them, it's just always been a, a case. He says, you know, when you, you think that if I had been there when my fathers had killed the prophets, I wouldn't have done that. You know, there's obviously historical accuracy to the fact that there have been times when the church, the label Christian, the label the church, have murderously killed tens of thousands of people. I mean, there's just historical case. And you can say, well, they weren't really believers. Or if I had been there, it wouldn't have been that. I mean, you can say all that. That's fine. You can say it, whatever you want. I'm just saying that there's this looming question that no one ever grapples with, which is, how is it that someone actually can believe and yet just be completely murderous? The story is very analogous. You know, you can say what you want about this group of people, but in Luke, at about this same time, the disciples go th- are heading to Jerusalem to worship, and they go through this Samaritan village, and they don't want them to go through because of the politics that are involved with them going to worship there and the differences and the discrimination, all sorts of reasons, but they just, bottom line, they don't want them to go through. James and John... The disciple whom Jesus loves, the two of the closest, most believing disciples say, should we call fire down from heaven and destroy them? Men, women, children, just blatant, like burning alive? Was it that they weren't true believers? Was it that they weren't followers of Jesus? I mean, what's, it, at some point, Jesus is working through with them. And talking through, and it's something we need to ask ourselves, is how can someone who actually does believe in what is actually the message of Jesus, the message that we need forgiveness from our sins, the message that he, and maybe don't understand it completely, none of us really 
you know, if we're honest, we can say these different words to describe it, but it takes a while to start grappling with it. How is it that we can be so murderous? And, and so here's how Jesus starts off. He says, if you hold to my teaching, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Teaching is a fine uh, translation. It's the uh, same word that he uses later on when we get to it, when he says, if you hold my word to my word. The teaching is just, what the word there is, is logos, which is just word. So he says, if you hold to my word, singular. And the only reason why I bring that up is sometimes when we think of teaching, we think that what Jesus is saying is, if you hold to the many things that I've taught about this subject or about that subject, if we look at all the different things and look at Jesus as saying, you should do this or you should do that, and I'm teaching you about how your finances are, and I'm teaching you about how you should raise your kids, and I'm teaching you about how you should relate to people, all these different, if we can hold to all these different teachings or words of Jesus, that's not what he's saying. He's saying word. In other words, whatever it is that he's saying and all the different things that he says about all the different topics, it's all about one singular message. It's that message that you come to believe in when you first come to Jesus, which is, I need help. I need a Savior. I need help in this situation or that or whatever. I'm messed up or I can't get it on my own. I need forgiveness. And my hope is that, that what I'm seeing is I'm seeing God saving me on the basis of forgiveness. That message, he says, that the reason why believers become murderous has to do with us not holding to that belief that you have when you first come to Jesus. Now, there's everybody knows what the belief is. It's not, he says later, it's like, do you really not understand what I'm saying? He says, of course you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> Whatever happens when you first come to Jesus, that come to Jesus moment, I know people say different things. It always involves this. Everybody knows it. You don't have to be a follower of Jesus or anything. You could be atheist and you still at least know what a come to Jesus moment is, culturally speaking. <laughs> it's this moment of just realizing, whoa, I am not capable of getting to where I feel like I need to go. I'm not, I've messed up. I'm not who I thought. I I need help. I need salvation in some sort of sense. And I'm, and I realize I need it on the basis of forgiveness. And he says, the reason why Christians, we'll just use that as a label. They used a different label for them. But the reason why people become murderous is He says the root of it always is that we take that moment, we see it, we believe it, and then we somehow feel like it's our mission then to move on beyond that. (laughs) That we now feel like that you know, we're moving beyond that, that we're really getting to something. We understand the gospel message. We understand that. We don't need to keep talking about that. We don't need to hash through it. I've been a believer for years. Let's talk about something more meaty, like, you know, what does Jesus have to say with how I can, you know, be solidified for my future in retirement? Or, you know, we just move on to some other issue. 
And he says that moving on away from that, unintentionally, no one like goes out and says, man, I just really want to serve God and just be the biggest murderer in the world. I mean, unless you're just sort of using that as like a, like, I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like you could use that as like, I, I don't know what people use for words anymore. Like, you know how people, oh, that was bad or something, but you actually meant it for good. I don't know. Anyways, I'm just saying no one moves out and says, I want to be a murderer in a real, like, you know, like it's a little bit of like an undetected. He says, the reason why it's unintended, he says, it's that moving away from that moment of realizing that what I need is only going to come to me as a gift from God based on forgiveness. When you move away from that and you move into how am I going to make that happen, Murder is where it goes. It's where it went with Cain and Abel. You know, it always goes there. And we don't, granted, don't even bother grappling with that right now. Just whatever. Jesus said it. It's a little bit shocking because I know none of us feel like it. They obviously didn't feel like it applied to them. So that's just, we're in line with the story. Just stay there. It's okay. They didn't, he wasn't expecting them to be, but he says it nonetheless. So it's something with us to grapple with. And here's how they answer. He said, oh, we're Abraham's descendants. We've never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? See, he's saying that, look, freedom or what it is that you really want is going to come to you through this initial moment that you have this belief, this breakthrough, this one point where you realize the good that's going to come into my life will come as a gift from God based on forgiveness, that that will provide us with the freedom to be able to have what it is that we want. But they felt like you can see here, here's where the disconnect is and why Jesus is saying how they're moving away from it. They're saying, No, no, that came from us having the label of Abraham's, we are children of Abraham. In other words, you could say it comes from us growing as a a church or as a, you know, I'm a Christian, you might say, or something like that, that there's something about themselves now when they say we are Abraham's descendant, what they're, I don't know, in their context, it'd be like saying, well, yeah, the Romans are murderous. We can see that the Roman Empire accomplishes what they want and what they think in a murderous way. But we are Abraham's descendants. You see what they're saying? They're saying there's something about us that is different than the murderous way that the world goes about doing things. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. That's what he's pulling out of them. It is they've realized in some sort of sense that I'm messed up, I need forgiveness for sins. We come to that realization, we're messed up, we, we need forgiveness for sins. And then we feel like that we build and create this image of ourselves as a group that we define or think of as being somehow now apart from everybody else. That, 
you know, yeah, everyone else lies and cheats, but a Christian doesn't lie and cheat. You know, yeah, if I go to a mechanic, they're probably going to tell me, try and work me a little bit. But if I go to a mechanic that has a little fish on their thing, like, then I'm not going to get cheated or something like that. I've got like a, a business guy. I think we should just create a little app that just shows me like where all the Christian businesses are because I really want to be treated right. You know, I, okay, that's a joke. Everybody knows that's a joke. But it, the jokes come from somewhere. <laughs> you know, jokes are about like generalized things that people actually do believe that now we make fun of it because it's so obviously ridiculous. But there had to have been a time when in order for it to be a funny joke, for people to actually think that way in some sort of sense. That's what they're getting at here when they say, we are Abraham's descendants. And what we, in what way haven't... They're being ruled by the Roman Empire. What do you mean in what way are you... I mean, it's just a ridiculous statement to say to begin with, but whatever. And then uh, here's where they go on. Jesus replies to that this idea that they have, that they've come to some sort of place that's different than everyone else. He says, very truly, I say to you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. He brings, well, they've just said, we've got what we want because we're better than everyone else. And he says, well, if you're a a sinner, then I don't know, where does he get that from? Because he had just said in the story that this is all leading from, when they say, oh, the law of Moses says we need to kill this person. And Jesus, when they press him on it, he finally stands up and says, well, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. And it says, beginning with the oldest, they walked away until there was none there. When he says, without sin... It's not even his testimony against them. In the context of the story, they were the ones that walked away. (laughs) In other words, like they testified of themselves by walking away, beginning with the oldest, uh, of saying, I'm not without sin. So it it should be there's, it's not like, oh, well, that's a revolutionary thought. I never, you know, really, I could have problems. You know, I could be doing things that are wrong. I mean, everybody realizes that. He says, think about this. You're forgetting about something. If you're without, if you sin, if part of that realization at the very beginning is I've messed up in some sort of way and I'm not deserving for what it is that I want, but God's forgiving me and giving me. Part of that understanding is realizing that I'm messed up. And so he says, you keep thinking that you're helping things by that you've moved from that to some place where you're not as messed up as someone else. You haven't moved from any of that. That's just a statement about who you are your entire life here on earth. And so he says, a lot of this stuff, we're building up this building, but the foundation is, is what he's about to say, is built on a lie. And that moment of truth that you had at the beginning leads you down a different path. And so he's not saying this to, you know, I, I don't know, to dominate over them or to say he's better. He's just trying to help them 
understand something about their freedom and the opportunity that they have right now. And holding to that at the beginning means holding to this understanding that I'm continuing to mess up. He says, now the slave has no permanent place in the family. If that is the case, that if what I found when I met Jesus was that this is an opportunity to now have something based on me not messing up, then I have no permanence because I'm obviously going to continue to mess up. There's nothing permanent that's been given there. He says, that's not the hope that you have when you come to Jesus. The hope is, he says, but the son, it does belong forever. There's permanence in, in Jesus And so if the Son sets you free, he's saying, this moment that you came to with Jesus had nothing to do with you setting yourself free or you coming to this place where you're Abraham's descendants and now you're better in some way than other people. It has nothing to do with it. It has to do with a gift that Jesus has given at that moment. And that has some permanence. The coming, he says, when you finally see that you'll betray, as Judas, you know, betrays him with the kiss, that when, when you finally see that you guys kill me on the cross and God gives life to me and raises people up from the grave right at that moment, this realization should happen at that, that realizes, wow, the forgiveness of God, I, I think I can count on that. The love of God, I think I can count on that. Me not messing up, I don't know if I can really... <laughs> someone else not messing up? I, you know, those are just... Str- but the love of God in my life, God caring for me, God always forgiving me. If he, God has come down and, and become a human being and, and allowed us to kill him to pay the price for sin so that God now has no reason whatsoever, the justice isn't impinging on him saying, no, you really shouldn't be. He says, I paid the price. He's getting at to this idea of here's where you're finding your hope is being set on things that aren't permanent, that are all wishy-washy, but here's where you're going to find something solid to stand on. And this instance of coming to realize this at Jesus, it's not something that now you build something different on your own accord. It's to realize that what it is that we have that's here, that's permanent in our lives is this beginning of us to understand how much God really loves us and how much he really is willing to be in our lives and forgive us. He says, I know that you're Abraham's descendants. I know you've got the label, but he says, you're looking for a way to kill me because you have no room for my word. What he is saying there is that they have this moment where they realize the gospel in their heart, that they need a Savior, that it's only going to come from forgiveness, and that what they want is being given as a gift based on forgiveness. They have that, but then they also have this other, Abraham's descendants of In order for me to get what I want, I need to do the right thing. I need to achieve this. I need to work down this road. And and what he's saying is, is because you've got this here and you're refusing to move this, you can't, there's no space to cram this other thing in. (laughs) 
He says that the reason why we become murderous isn't because we don't have real instances in our life where we see that the gospel is true and we actually do believe and we know that our hope is based on forgiveness. The reason is is that we have this other set of beliefs that's murderous, he's going to explain to them, but we have this, and we're just so insistent that there has to be some sort of good in our life that must come from this belief also, that when we have this real truth, even though it's contrary to this, instead of taking this and just moving it out of the way and putting this there, we just try and like synthesize them together. We try and say, well, there's a tension between grace and works. There, there's, in one sense, God does forgive us. But then in another sense, you know, God helps those who help themselves. We try and just synthesize these things and think that they coexist. But he says, he's about to say, the lie of the devil is that they coexist. They displace each other. And in order to hold to one, you actually have to remove that and replace it with this. And you might ask, well, what the heck are you talking about? It happens every single day, every hour of your life. Every interaction that you have is a moment where you make a choice to not displace this and replace it with what you know is true of the gospel. You get a great job. A thousand people applied. You got the job. Everybody in the world is like, man, you're really smart. You're really experienced. You're really here. When you talk about it with people, it's hard to not go down that road. Everybody in the world, your company is probably, if you're like one out of a thousand or 10,000 or whatever, everything is geared towards pushing you to think about this in the sense that you earn this, you deserve this, you've become something, you've risen above. You're Abraham's descent. There's something about you that has risen above everybody else. And to think about it and talk about it in that sense, and that happens all the time. But if you know the gospel and you want to displace it, then you have to stop and in your mind say, I can't can't believe God just gave this to me. (laughs) I, I didn't deserve this. A thousand people applied. I was probably the least qualified for it. Start thinking about it, talking about it. That's what I mean. That's what he's getting at. You're not replacing it, he's saying. You're just thinking, well, I'm going to enjoy this moment. And then I'll say, praise be to God. You know, I'm the most awesome football player in the world, but praise be to Jesus, I just made this touchdown or something like that. We try and like make it all like work together. He says, doesn't work like that. It displaces. And to the extent that we stop displacing it with what we know is true, we head down a murderous path. He says, if you were... I'm telling you what I've seen from the Father's presence and you are doing what you have heard from your father. They say, Abraham is our father. He says, if you were Abraham's children, 
then you would do what Abraham did. As it is, you're looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you nothing but the truth that I have heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. Before Abraham believed, and he was afraid for his life when he was in Egypt, he told Pharaoh that his wife was his sister because he was afraid that his wife was so beautiful that Pharaoh would kill him to get to her. It was agreement that they had. They, they had a way of approaching problems and a way of, and they had faith and they had belief in this plan that they had, that their life, their protection would be involved in them following this plan. But God closed the room of Pharaoh and told Pharaoh supernaturally, like, look, you took this man's wife. Pharaoh comes in and he says, you know, God is the one who stepped in and told Pharaoh what was that. And Pharaoh, who's this evil guy, comes and says, why would you do such a thing to me? You know, God's like against me now. And Abraham prays, he sets it all straight, he leaves. He wasn't saved by his plan, which was a lie. He was saved because God stepped in in spite of his stupid plan, in spite of his lie. God still had favor on him. And without him even asking for forgiveness, God just stepped in and gave him forgiveness anyways. (laughs) And then it says, God comes to him and talks to him through many chapters later. And it says, God proclaims about him. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. In other words, he believed God. And God said, look, I'm going to save you. I'm going to be, after all these experiences, he just, he had this moment of belief. And God then, it says, reckoned as righteousness. It means he was now viewed as being righteous, even though he wasn't righteous. He was now viewed as being righteous just because he believed in what this message of that we need a Savior and he's willing to forgive us. And then after he believed, Abraham again faced that same situation with Abimelech, a king, and told Abimelech, my wife is my sister, and went back to that same old thing. And God saved him again in the exact same way. What was the deeds of Abraham that Jesus, not that he was like before and after, he was this changed person. He did the exact same plans, the same like hope, the same everything was exactly the same. The only thing that was different was he believed And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. He says, the problem is, is Abraham believed, but but you guys are walking away from that. And they say, we are not illegitimate children. Again, talking about that it was common knowledge at their, and their, uh, for them to know that there was something different about the way that Jesus was born. And they put it in a, in a, in a uh, negative sense, that Joseph clearly wasn't his father or that he was born out of wedlock or whatever it is they made a judgment. Anyways, I'm not going to go there. You can take that for whatever it is. Jesus, that's the way they viewed Jesus. It says that the, the only father that we have is God himself. And Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would have loved me. Or the word is, you would have welcomed me. You know, but as it is, he says, I, I come from God and now here I am. 
I have not come on my own accord, but he who sent me. It's like Jesus is, isn't just talking about how much Jesus loves you and how much Jesus cares for you and how much Jesus is willing to die on the cross. He's saying, I'm coming only because God cares that much for you. And God has asked me to do this because God cares about you and God wants to solve this problem. He says, why is my language not clear to you? Because you are unable to hear it, what I say. You belong to your father, El Diablo. That's the word he uses, Diablo. I love that word, rather than the devil. Same thing, it's like de- devil just sounds, I don't know. Anyways, you're of the devil, he says. You want to carry out your, your father's desires. You're, you're children of the devil, and you want to carry out the devil's desire. I mean, he's not mincing words. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. For there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language. For he is a liar and the father of lies. Yet because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me? Can you prove me guilty of any sin? If I'm telling the truth, why don't you believe me? Whoever belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. Now, what he's doing clearly is he's challenging them in the most pointed way possible to reconsider the righteousness that they think they have with the label of being Abraham's descendants. In other words, he's challenging them to see how it is that they might be connected to something murderous that would require their Savior to have to have died on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins. When we first come to Jesus, no one understands that Jesus had to die. I mean, that's just words we're connecting to and kind of realize, I need forgiveness, I realize that. I need for someone, but I mean, all I did was I just sort of lied to my neighbor and I'm kind of feeling guilty about it. I mean, that's hardly deserving of death. In other words, he's challenging them, holding to his word involves Jesus challenging them to grapple with how it is that they're connected with his murder. And that's something that, you know, you know, I, I, I don't know, I probably shouldn't go there. No one else goes here, so I don't know why I'm going to go here and just get everyone ticked off at me. But if you look at what he's talking about here, he's not talking about that they went out and... I mean, granted, if they could have stoned him to death, they were about to do it and they would have just blatantly killed him and then it would have just been blatant killing. But the the reason why it, it says at the end that Jesus just hid and walked away from it. In other words, the only reason why they weren't actually like taking out a knife and stabbing someone or shooting someone, like actually like, you know, actually literally like killing someone murderous in that sort of sense 
had nothing to do with the laws of the land, had nothing to do with who they were as righteousness, had nothing to do with them having compassion or this or that, had nothing to do with anyone else. It only had to do with the only reason why it didn't happen by their own hand is because Jesus didn't let it happen. Jesus said, no, I'm not going to let that happen in this case. But when it did happen, it's interesting to, to look at like what exactly it is that happened when Jesus died on the cross and, and how is it that the crowd or that believers participated in that. And, and the only reason I'm going to bring this up is maybe it'll be like an inkling or it's been helpful for me to grapple with that connection of being murderers. The beginning of the chapter started with them bringing this woman before him, uh, not for the purpose so much of, I mean, they would have probably been fine with killing her anyways, regardless of Jesus, but it, it says that it happened because they were looking for an opportunity to accuse him. In other words, what was happening was that they knew that in order to get where they wanted to go, they were going to have to kill Jesus, but they needed to control the story. And so this was an indication of bringing it out in sort of a newsworthy fashion to paint a picture about Jesus so that when they did do it, everyone was, you know, they created a, uh, they were trying to create a, um, um, I don't know, what's that called? Yeah, a narrative. There you go. They were trying to create a narrative about Jesus because the narrative that was just there when people looked at Jesus wasn't sufficient to do this. So they had to use what was newsworthy in their sense. Like you think all of a sudden it's like, whoa, where did fake news come from? I don't know. It's been there forever. People always use, create everything in the world is geared towards creating this narrative to justify something happening. You don't think that there's narratives being created and, and, and that result in people dying? But now we feel disconnected to it because we've participated in this narrative that's been drawn about the situation. Like, I mean, I don't know. Maybe that doesn't happen anymore. It was an old-fashioned thing that happened. But now, you know, no such thing occurs. And you don't see how, like, us joining in with that and, and how... What, what, what kept it from joining in with that was Jesus stepping up and giving them this moment where they had to grapple with the fact of saying, I'm not without sin, and the oldest left first. They walked away from that narrative creation, that, that whole business of trying to create this. They walked away from it, and what caused them to walk away from it was this moment when Jesus said something that pricked something, that their conscience kicked in, that they realized, I'm not without sin. But they stopped walking away from it, and they ended up yelling, crucify him, crucify him, and joining in. They didn't kill him themselves. The, the leaders that were trying to create this narrative held him up like this little circus court type thing. They, they weren't actually going to kill him. They knew that the Roman Empire, I mean, if he was going to be crucified, that was something the Romans were going to have to do. They didn't have the authority to do But they still railroaded him through all of this like kind of circus court type thing to kind of contribute to this narrative or this picture that's being created about something so that, that the result is a bunch of people are going to end up dying about this, but now we've run it through this circuit 
court type thing, you know, that were this fact-finding mission to see, to paint this picture that's there. You don't think that happens all the time? And then it goes before the justice system, which actually says, Pilate says, well, I mean, I, I, I'm not really seeing the connection here. <laughs> I, I really, really, this guy hasn't really done anything wrong, but I mean, it's like, I don't want to ruin my image of being an oppressor. I mean, I enjoy killing people. Don't get me wrong. It's just there's something here that's jarring my conscience. And then he puts it before them in a democratic vote. Wasn't, Rome wasn't very democratic, but for whatever reason, what do you guys think? You can have this murderer, or you can have Jesus, and they participate, and they say, we want this murder. The way that they participated and were murderous was joining into a lot of processes and different things that were on the surface benign or on the surface like seemingly like good processes to have in place. And they could be good processes to have in place if it wasn't for the fact that everyone's evil. <laughs> the fact, you have doesn't matter how righteous the process is, if you have people railroading it through that are evil, chances are it's going to be tainted. And, and all he's saying is, as part of it is, is challenging us to, instead of just dismissing our connection to hundreds of thousands of people dying because some prescription jug is being oversold to just say, you know, I'm probably just as responsible as as everyone else for something like that. It would be a start to say that. But, But why does he want them to do that? Not so that they can determine who's a good person and who's a bad person. The reason why he says is that you will understand your freedom. And otherwise, you'll become enslaved. It's not even that you're murderous. He's just bypassing that. What he's really getting at here by bringing out how murderous they are is that you're enslaving yourself to something. And what I'm offering you is freedom. And so he's saying, how is it that that happens? Because when you think that you're holding on to it, like, I'm sorry, I'm going overboard. I'll just end with this. Let's say... What is it that you want in freedom? Let's just take some shot in the dark. I want to feel secure. I, I want to be happy. I want to, like, do something that I can kind of feel good about or something like that. I mean, all sorts of different things you may think of. It might just be, I just want money. I don't know. But it's usually something else. And, and then you think, oh, how am I going to... Almost everybody just sort of takes some sort of stab in the dark, like, well, I'm going to become a doctor. <laughs> or I'm going to become, you know something, like you put your sights on this, and a lot of times it shifts and God gives you a different job, but whatever the case is, and then you think, well, well, in order to do that, I need to work really hard at this, I need to go here, I need to do this, and you just keep thinking of things as like, what I want is somewhere down the road, and I'm enslaving myself to this process. First of all, I'm enslaving myself to this shot in the dark that I think is going to get me what I want. And then half the time you get there, you know, that didn't get me what I wanted. (laughs) But so one thing is just a shot. But you enslave yourselves to a process and you do that on purpose because it's this hope that what you want and you feel as though the only way you can have what it is that you want, the price to be paid is that today I have to enslave myself to this process. And that could be a million different things. 
It's this hope of saying, what I want is in the future, and the only way that I can have it is today in this moment to enslave myself to this process. And Jesus is bringing us, well, that process you're enslaving yourself to is just murderous. It's a murder. It's not just killing. It's killing you. <laughs> you know, and you know what that process is. And you know it's killing you. But we just can't let go of that hope that me enslaving myself to this will get me this. But when you have that moment when Jesus saves you <laughs> and forgives you, and does something good in your life that's completely contrary to that, that's a freeing moment if you live in it. And what he's saying is, is, look, to what extent will God involve himself in our lives? To the extent that he'll become, come down and be born a baby and not have any place to lay his head to live... Jesus, to that extent. <laughs> to what extent will God make up for all the stupid stuff that I do in my failure? To the extent that he's willing to die himself to pay for it. <laughs> what Jesus is saying, I'm just going to put it out, instead of trying to, I'm just going to put it straight out and we'll end on this. What he's saying is, is God already loves you, God already cares about you, you, the what you want, God has already put the hope that they have is standing right there before them today in this conversation talking to them, but they're ignoring it. The gift that God has given you that you're setting your hopes on, that you're enslaving yourself, it's already there. The reason why we're not connecting to it is we don't believe it's there. We don't believe that God would give us this life, that it could happen in the middle of all these other things. We don't believe that God could give us the gift of Jesus coming down and dying on the cross, that that could all happen with the, you know, without you know, fixing everything. What he's saying is he's challenging them is the reason why it's not some sort of thing where you're going to become a better person than anyone else. He's just challenging us to look at what it is that's happening today and to look for the gift that God has given to take joy in it, the freedom that we have. That there's, In other words, I know you may, let's take school for instance, I know you may feel like, well, school's just a process to the end. I'm enslaving myself to it. This sucks, you know, and i am just got to gut it through it. There might be something about it that doesn't suck, that's actually great right now, today. <laughs> that you could just end up be going because all of a sudden you see God's doing something really awesome, that there's like some people I'm connecting to. There's something that I enjoy about it right now. And he's just sort of challenging us to say, look, this idea of the gospel, it's not this beginning that now we have a new start and we can now just enslave ourselves to never enjoying life and never doing this because something good is going to happen in the future. It's this moment of realizing the truth and the reason why it's so important or why it's valuable for us, it isn't that, you know, it's that right now in this life, God's doing things. He knows you. He knows what you love. He knows what your hopes are, what your fears are. And it'd be worthwhile to look around and see, is that available right now? But I'm just not grabbing a hold of it because I just really don't believe it. And I'm just so locked into this idea that I've got to suffer before I have it. 
Not everything that is going on is just about you suffering so that you can be righteous and getting what it is that you... Jesus did all that. He's saying there's things, there's people, there's moments right now that of course it's going to be all messed up. But the power of God is, the power of the resurrection is that he's giving that to us so that we can enjoy it. He, he doesn't need for everything to be fixed in order for us to have it. He can just give it freely to us. And, and part of what he's saying when he's saying you don't even welcome me is he's not just talking about him. He's saying we're just, we should wake up every day and just welcome all that God has for us that day. He has some awesome things. And whenever we take these little decisions and we don't displace it and we keep saying, yeah, I'm the one who got this. I'm the one who made this happen. And we fail to see the gift. You can do whatever you want to do. He's fine. You do whatever you want to do, he's saying. But if you want to have that peace of God that comes from standing on something rock solid, which is his love, and see the freedom that he's given us and that what we want is right here in front of us. It's not going to come from God doing more. He's already done it all. It has to do with us accepting it, believing it. And the way we come to believe it and the way we come to see it it is the same way that happens when we first come to Jesus. Let us pray. Uh, Maybe as the demon comes up, let's stand and we'll pray together. Be nice. Everyone stand. As we're praying, uh, if God's been working on your heart and you Maybe as everyone's eyes are closed and if you'd like to accept Jesus as your Savior and start this journey, you can feel that belief is there and you want to respond to it. Raise your hand and I'll pray with you right now. Okay. I see your hand. Okay. And for all of us, if you have any kind of prayer request as we're singing these last couple songs as you stand and pray and even at the end, uh, there'll be some folks up here. Please come up. And, and God is more than anxious to prove himself true and prove his word true and to hear what you have to say and respond to you. Uh, please, uh, if you have something on your heart, come forward and just ask for some prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we just thank you so much for being so good and so patient and for walking through with us. Uh, thank you for always forgiving us. Thank you for always being so patient with us. Uh, Lord, I just pray that this week you would really help us to welcome you in our life and to welcome all that you've given us and to not have it be dependent on all the things that are going on that aren't goofy, but that we'll be able to see your gifts that you're giving us today and the way that you're here and that you care for us and confirmations of your love for us. We just ask that you'd make that even I guess you're making it as clear as you can. I pray you just soften our heart, Lord, to be able to hear it, to be able to see it, to accept it. We ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.